James chapter 1, verses 13, through the end of the chapter, which is verse 27, these are the words of God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing that is given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of a person he was." but one who looks intently at the perfect law of liberty and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Show of hands, how many of you would say that your desire, you're here, it seems to convey your desire, your desire is to be pleasing to God? Okay, just look around for just a second. Okay. Um, There are challenges in the church that we face where um, we assume things of other people, okay? And why do we assume things? We assume things based on evidence, based on things that we observe. And so we assume that people either do want to serve God because we see them being very zealous or very fervent for the kingdom, or we often see them as being... um, uh, lazy or uh, not caring, or they, they just put on a show of Christianity, but they don't actually want to be Christians. And so we, we make these observations all the time. Um, s- some of these observations are good observations. Some of these, uh, sometimes when we make these observations and we're calling a brother out for the purpose of, um, uh, or brother or sister, for the purpose of challenging them or encouraging them to walk purely before God, it's important to call out what you see. It's important to say, mm, I don't, you're not walking like Jesus right now. Um, other times, it's also important to really encourage when you do see, and I, I fall short of this constantly. Uh, it's really important to encourage those as they walk after God to just kind of Give them a boost to say, hey, uh, I see that you're striving, I see that you're longing, I see that you're working, and you should keep on it, because, hey, way to go. The Apostle Paul does this very uh, interestingly in the Scriptures, okay? In, in one instance, say, for example, to the Thessalonians, 
the Apostle Paul would say something like this. He would say, I see your faith, I see your hope, I see your love, and it's encouraging to me. And I want you to keep doing it, and I want the rest of the world to see it. This is how he would address the, the Thessalonians. Not so much with the Galatians. Not so much with the Galatians. He looks at the Galatians and says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You've abandoned the faith, basically. What is your problem, okay? And so what happens is we come into church and we hear one or the other, right? And we can tend to like get our, get our scales all up or get our fur all up in the back and, and we, we panic, okay? Unless it's loving, unless it's, hey, you're doing a great job, even if you're not doing a great job and you're like, see, I'm awesome, right? Okay, so there's some pride issues that go on there. But we need both of these things. Today, all I want you to know is that I believe you when you say, I really want to please God. I believe you. I believe that those hands went up for a reason. I believe that your desire is to please God. I also believe that even though we want to please God, this will also get answered in the affirmative, I would guess. Um, Although we want to please God, the same hands that went up say, I don't always know how. So how many of you would say, I want to please God, but I don't always know how? Okay, look around. It's almost the same exact amount of hands, right? So we want to please God, but we don't know how. And here's what happens when we don't know how to please God. We don't tend to, um, we don't tend to own up. Okay? When we don't know how to please God, we basically say it's something else's fault. There's something else going on. It's either, it's either uh, sin and temptations or all these different things, or I'm not taught well enough, or whatever it might be. And so we enter into what I call the blame game. Uh, we, we tend to point the finger at anything and everything else in our life. Well, just like pleasing God, we do this when it comes to temptation, when it comes to walking purely um, in our righteousness versus sin. We tend to play a blame game. Uh, We have many areas or many directions that we blame. Sometimes we blame the inanimate objects that we we long for, right? So I'm tempted towards greed and all of these other things. And so I say, if God hadn't put all those shiny things in front of me, I wouldn't have this problem, right? So, So we tend to point at inanimate objects. We tend to point at other people. We tend to say that they're the cause of our problems, right? They don't let us do the things that we want to do, or they entice us towards things. One of my favorites is that we blame the devil for everything, right? The devil made me do it. The devil ain't made you do nothing in your life, right? You have made you do it. The devil might be playing games with you, but uh, the devil didn't make you do it. And then in James, what we have is we have this situation where... Um, somebody in James's day was blaming God for it, right? Somebody in James's day is blaming God. So it leads to James saying, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Why do you give that instruction unless something there is happening, right? So I want you to know that when we play this blame game, when we're pointing the fingers at everybody else or anything else, we, we have a serious problem and we need to go into some self-reflection because in the end, the issues always lie with us. The issue of sin, the issue of righteousness, it lies with us. How many of you know that uh, self-control is really the kryptonite 
to temptation. How many of you know that self-control is the kryptonite to temptation? It really will uh, overcome these things if, if we'll be self-controlled. But here's something that you might not think about. Self-control is something everyone has. Wait, Nathan. No, 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 no. Hold on. Hold on a second. It's a gift of the Spirit, and it's something that we're supposed to get when we submit to Jesus. Everybody in this room, every person in this world has self-control. You know what your problem is? You know what your uh, blessing is, maybe, if you are submitted to King Jesus? It's not about controlling self. That you have. It's about what you give that control to. Okay? You can control yourself when you want to sin. You're really darn good at it, aren't you? Right? Aren't we? Let's, come on. Be with me here today, right? When it comes to sin, I lack no problem in controlling it. I just go straight for it. Right? Like, hey, look at my self-control right now. You see, self-control has to have an object. And what the Bible is pointing us to is self-control towards the things of the kingdom, not the things of the world. Myself is controlled at all times. It's just controlled for wrong things. I just love sin sometimes, okay? And so do all of us. But instead of owning that, because somehow that's taboo in the church... Instead of owning that, we blame everybody else. I say, well, my problem is actually the, the stuff in my life, right? I have a problem because there's stuff in my life, and I, I lust after that stuff, I desire that stuff, and if it wasn't there, it would be better. Mm-mm. It's still your heart. Or it's that person on Facebook that always seems to try to show off on how much better their life is than mine, and I'm covetous. It's their fault. <laughs> it's, it, it's your fault right? You can mute them. Did you know that? You don't have to block everybody on Facebook, but you can mute them, right? Or the devil made me do it. Or in James's case, it's this strange idea that God made me do it. But we have to start taking ownership of these things. And what we're going to talk about today is taking ownership instead of playing a blame game. So let me give you some examples of blame that we do. One of them, uh, besides the devil made me do it, is, are these two phrases. I'm twitching because I hate these phrases. Okay. Um, well, everybody's a sinner. Thanks, genius. <laughs> I, I needed to hear that, right? I know that, right? Everybody's a sinner. Even better, this is the next one that's amazing. Nobody's perfect. I was really struggling with that, right? I, was, I really thought I was for a while there, right? No, nobody, nobody's perfect and everybody freaking knows it, right? Everybody's a sinner and everyone knows it. But we use them as excuses so we can keep sinning and go, everybody's a sinner. Nobody's perfect. In other words, I'm not striving for nothing because, well, nobody's perfect. You know that that's an excuse? You know you're blaming something right now, right? You're blaming uh, some sort of universal truth that you believe. This is not good, okay? Uh, Take this one for an example. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, the things I want to do, I can't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Now, if you don't understand the Bible in its context, you will make that the most horrible thing possible. It actually creates a contradiction in the Bible. Paul is talking about the comparison between the old man and the new man. And here's what Paul says about the old man. The things I want to do, good things, I don't do. I've taught this so many times, I just hope it's sticking, right? The things I don't want to do, I keep doing. 
What are the things he doesn't want to do? Sin, right? Bad things. But he keeps doing it. And then he says, the things I do want to do, I don't do. What are the things he wants to do? Good things. But he says he doesn't do them. If we don't understand it in context, the Apostle Paul effectively just said, you can never do good. I can't ever do good. I want to do it, I can't. I, I don't want to do it, and I keep doing it. I can never ever do good. Well, that's absurd. Because the same Apostle Paul says that we're supposed to be perfect as our Father is perfect. The same Apostle Paul says that you're supposed to strive for all of these things. Run in such a way as to win the prize, (laughs) but you can't. What? That doesn't make any sense. What the Apostle Paul is saying is there's an old man and then there's a new man. And when there's a new man, there's no excuse. It's like a clapping monkey up here, right? Okay, so there's no excuse. We have the power. Here's another way we blame, okay? We say things like this. I know that the Bible says to love God and love people, but you can't really love people until you first learn how to love your self, okay? Can you please understand this? The Bible says you love you well. I love me really well. I bathe me, I feed me, I care for me. Even when I'm upset with people, even when people rub me the wrong way, you know why I put people out of my life? Because I love me. Do you understand that? Every time you put somebody out of your life because, well, they're challenging, they're a frustrating person, all you're saying with very loud language is, I love me. I love me, and you bother me, so I'm going to put you out. Do you realize this? Like, we don't think about this. It's still a blame game. And the blame game is, well, that person's annoying, so therefore I don't have to do what God said. (laughs) This is bad. (laughs) And we do it all the time, don't we? We do it all the time. We play this blame game so much that we end up thinking that when we're tempted, it has nothing to do with us. We think it has something to do with outside sources or the devil. James' case, maybe even God, people thought he was tempting. It's not the case. Can you say this with me? Temptation is my problem. Say this with me. Temptation is my problem. Okay, have a great week, guys. And uh, (laughs) figure that one out. Here's what James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But, I love buts in scripture, but each one, who are we talking about? Each person, right? Each one, the very ones that would say, I'm being tempted by God. But each one is tempted when he or she is carried away and enticed by Say that out. Whose own lust? Hmm. It's mine. It's yours. It's our problem. You see, even if there's a person in life that is enticing you, the book book of Proverbs talks a lot about this, like there's this kind of uh, enticing people away from wisdom, calling them to foolishness or whatever. Um, Even if the devil is doing what he was doing, able to do with Job, even if it is an outside source, please understand this. Those pieces, those people, those parties are playing into your desires. 
They're not planting a desire in your head. They're playing into the desire you already have. See, the devil knows we're all sinners. The devil knows nobody's perfect. He doesn't need the phrase, right? He knows it. And so because of that, he also plays on our own desires. But it is still, nonetheless, it is still our desires and we have to face this. And when we do, it becomes powerful because we can employ self-control not towards sin, but towards the right things. We can control ourselves toward righteousness. So it says this, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. That word lust is a tricky word because uh, we all have one folder and one meaning in that folder for lust, don't we? It just, it's constantly there. Okay? We hear Jesus say, don't lust after someone in your heart because you've committed adultery with them already. And we automatically take lust, we put it into sexual issues, and it's always that in our mind. But this word doesn't just translate lust, and it shouldn't be translated lust, in my opinion, in the English translation here. It should be translated what it is, and that is craving. Show of hands, how many of you know you can have good cravings? I do right now because I'm already thinking about lunch, right? So you can, you can have good cravings. You should have a good craving. Husbands, let me talk to you. You should have a good craving for your wife. Okay? I got a little harder amen than I thought I was going to get there. Anyway. After church, people. Anyway, okay. So, so you should crave your wife. Wives, you should crave your husband. Okay? I only got one amen there. <laughs> and that was... And, <laughs> All I can say is, way to go, Jerry. Way to go. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Have a good week, guys. <laughs> that's, that's worth the price of admission right there. So, so each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, own cravings. We all have cravings. Some are good, some are bad. How many of you know that Jesus, when he's tempted by the devil in the wilderness, is uh, tempted to crave what his physical human nature needed, bread, right? But guess what? He doesn't live by bread alone. You see, all cravings can become a bad situation when you're enticed away by them, consumed by them, when God expressly says otherwise, So, if God speaks to you, if God convicts you, I don't care how you understand this, but if God speaks to you or convicts you and says, don't drink anymore, you need to listen. You know why you need to listen? Because that craving might not be the problem, but it might be with you. It might be that you're carried away by it. You're enticed by it. So what happens? You become a drunkard. You become a glutton, you become all kinds of things when you're enticed away or lured away by these desires. Some can be good and some can be objectively bad. I don't think we have a problem knowing we shouldn't go murdering people. I think our problem is the smaller things where we go, does God want that for me? And we have to answer the question, does God want that for me? Right. So we have these cravings. Jesus faced those cravings and yet what did he do? He said, I'm not going to be enticed. I'm not going to be carried away by my craving. I'm going to submit it to the Father. That is how you overcome 
temptation. It is self-control, but what are you controlling yourself to do? Submit it back to King Jesus. Submit it back to the Father. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is easy in any way. Okay, this is actually terribly complicated, but uh, this is still what we're supposed to do. So what James goes on to say is actually just a series of ideas that go along with this. All ideas that we struggle with. So listen to what he says. Verse 14 again. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own craving, his own lust. Then when craving has conceived, like you just give in to it, you're carried away by it. Guess what it does? It gives birth to sin because you're not trusting God. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now let's take a step back and think about the death that it brings forth. In the garden, Adam and Eve were told that if they would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will die. And what did the devil come and try to say? You won't surely die. And if we were taking everything in a literal sense, who was actually right? Huh. It's almost like the devil was right. Because they ate it and they didn't die, right? Because death that we're seeing here comes in many, many forms. If you are enticed by your lust and you give in to the sin, that sin can bring about death in many areas of your life, right? You, if you participate, Mark shared his testimony briefly this morning. He's going to share that testimony in depth on Good Friday. And it is a valuable lesson. It is a valuable teaching for Good Friday because it really does point the picture to why Good Friday is good. When you hear what Mark has gone through, when you hear what God has brought him through, you'll be, you'll be really amazed by that. So I encourage you to be here. But let's say you're enticed by drugs and alcohol and you commit that sin, you go into that, you don't trust God, you just get into it, and all of that just goes haywire. Do you know how much death people like this create? They create death in their families because they abandon them. They create death in their jobs because they abandon them. They create death in a lot of areas. Adam and Eve were dead to a really amazing thing, and that is covenant time with God. They were dead. They were separated from the king and his temple. This is unbelievable. Death comes in many ways. So James says, be careful on this. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. If you are craving something and you are carried away by it, it conceives, it gives birth to sin, sin is accomplished, it kills a lot of things in your life. And here's the big problem. If you continue to walk in sin perpetually, it will ultimately lead to a death where you are separated from the Father completely. This is a tragic idea that happens. So Paul says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Now, let's go into what we're tempted to do, what our desires want to do, and what we have to gain control over from verse 17 all the way to the end of the chapter. He says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The first truth that we have to remember in this is that everything God gives is good, even when it doesn't seem as good as the thing you want to sin with. Can I get an amen? Do you understand what I'm saying? If this is God's, but you really want this... I am here to tell you this is good whether you know it or not. This looks really good, but this is good. 
And God is the giver of those things. Here's the other beauty in this. God is not fickle. He's not a genie in a lamp. He is not playing games with you. There is no variation in God. There is no shifting shadow in God. He gives good things and only ever always gives good things. That's beautiful, right? And guess what one of those good things is? Smacking you upside the head sometimes. No one loves discipline in the moment, the Bible tells us. But when we understand the fruit that it produces, we look back and we love it. It's an amazing thing. Same thing happens with trial and all those things. All I'm getting at is remember, if God gives it, it's good. You don't get to redefine it. So if God is there to discipline you and correct you, what should we do? We should thank God. If you're facing trial, what should you do? James says you should endure it with joy. Why? Because whether you think it or not, it's actually good. It's actually good for you. So it goes on. Every good thing with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Verse 18. In the exercise of his will, God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What's so important about this line? In redemption, we are supposed to be the first fruits of a new creation. We're supposed to show the world, even by our actions, that there is redemption. And that requires us not giving in to temptation. That requires us walking after God. It requires us trusting Him. I know it's hard, but it requires us doing it. It requires us not blaming everybody else for it. It requires us submitting and realizing it might be hard, but we can do it. Okay, verse 18 again. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren. Verse 19 is pointing to what follows, not what was said before. The NASB struggles with this rendering because what that literally says is this is something you should know, my beloved brethren. Listen to what you should know. And you're going to be tempted to not do this. And I'm going to ask for some audience participation here in a second. But everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. How many of you got that down like you've nailed it? If any hand raises up, you come up here, I retire, and you start teaching, please. Right? This is really awesome. <laughs> this is good. Dave, Dave, he's ready. He's ready. Okay. So, but here, here is the beautiful thing here. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Do you know what you're tempted to do on that first thing? Quick to hear, right? Quick to hear. You know that you can't speed up your hearing, right? <laughs> I've tried. It doesn't work. But what you can do is ready your hearing, and that's the point of it, right? Uh, so be quick to hear. What is the temptation in quick to hear? Okay, it could be quick to respond. What else? Not here at all. What'd you say, Bob? Jump to assumptions. Be quick to hear. What that means is shut up, <laughs> right? Listen to the whole story. But it's really challenging, isn't it? Because what we do, and husbands, I want to talk to you just for a second. We do this a lot. We do this a lot, men in general, but husbands particularly. We do this a lot because our wife will say something and we go, yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> you know how much that irritates them? 
<laughs> Listen, it irritated Tina so much this morning, she didn't show up to church. Just letting you know that. But anyway, no, she's got her granddaughters in. It's a beautiful thing. But anyway, so here's the point. What we're tempted to do in Quick to Hear is we assume things and we don't listen all the way through. You know how many things we could fix if we just listen? (laughs) Right? Like all the way, all the way. Do you know that being quick to hear um, and slow to speak, which we're going to get to next, might mean that you have to give responses more than... Uh, immediate or automatic responses as we live in today. We live in an instant culture, and here's how impatient we've become. If you don't respond immediately, you have a problem. Hold on, especially if it's complicated. Now listen, if somebody says, hey, you want to have lunch? You shouldn't wait three days, <laughs> right? It's lunch passed, okay? But if, if we're talking about hard things in life, we should really stop and not fall into the temptation of, you know what, I know what this person's trying to say, and I don't like it. I received an email this week, and I, this happens a lot, and I've learned this lesson the hard way by my responses in the past. And uh, many of you might not know this, but um, I'm impatient. And so um, I have learned, shut it. Anyway, I have, I have learned this lesson the hard way in my responses, in that I will respond quickly, and I respond quickly in emotion, right? All to find out that I didn't even read the sentence right. It's awful. It's awful. Didn't even read the sentence right. And when I don't read the sentence right, and I respond in a fashion that is hurtful, um, the person's usually confused and saying, what in the world are you talking about? Why, why, what is happening here? So it's taught me over time. Now, I'm, I'm here to tell you, anybody who knows me and responds and corresponds with me knows I haven't mastered this in any way, shape, or form, but I have gotten way better than I was four years ago or five years ago. I read things, I reread things, I have people read things to me, <laughs> right? I have to do it because I'm not being quick to hear because my temptation is I assume what you've said. We've got to get better at this, church. We've got to get better at this. We want to please God, right? So if we want to please God, we need to do the things that he's called us to do. We're going to be tempted to just say, I know the story already, and here's what for. Calm down. Take a deep breath. Take it from a different angle. Okay, the next one. Slow to speak. What's the temptation there? Temptation? Slow to speak. What's the temptation? Well, that's, that's the remedy. What's the temptation? Do what? Yes, to talk when you should be listening. You know, Larry King said something very fascinating uh, before he passed away. He said, uh, I never learned anything while talking. <laughs> that's amazing. I hate that because I, I want to talk more. But anyway, so I never learned anything while talking. He was a great interviewer because he listened. And then he responded, and then they worked through things. Our temptation is to just jump in and be quick to speak. It seems simple. It's to jump in, be quick to speak. And if we're quick to speak, but we haven't been slow to hear, or quick to hear, we haven't listened fully, uh, what we're going to say is either going to be unhelpful at the best end of it, or it's going to be offensive and hurtful uh, on the worst end of it, right? 
So these are our temptations. And James has all this in mind when he's talking. Because what we're going to see after Easter is we're going to see a lot of stuff about the human tongue and how we've got to get this thing under control. Because if we don't, we will burn down the world. And let me just take a second to jump on a, a soapbox here to talk to the church at large. The church of all places should be a place where we go to our brothers and sisters, feel safe enough to look them in the eye, to talk to them about the problems we have, to address the issues that they have, and never, never set foot in the realm of gossip. That should be what the church does. But the church is no good at it. And listen, I'm not just talking some make-believe church out in the middle of nowhere. I'm talking even here. I'm talking even you. Listen, if you have a problem with somebody, you do not need to entertain the squabbles of others or they should not entertain your squabbles about other people. They shouldn't. I'm not telling you this from a place of innocence. I'm telling you this from a place of guilt, but I'm also telling you this from a place of deep and profound hurt when it happens. If you have a problem with somebody, and let me just say this as blunt as I can, if you have a problem with me, my phone number is 513-828-9800. And now the internet has it, and I'm screwed. Anyway, so my number is 513-828-9800. Do not talk to Barney about your problems with me. Do not talk to Mark about your problems with me. Do not talk to your wife about your problems with me, your husband with your problems with me, or your friends about your problems with me. Do me the greatest thing that you can do, and that is talk to me. Sit down right across the table from me, because here's what's true, and people who have been with me long enough know this to be true. If you really want to have unity, you are safe with me. You are safe with me. Anybody who's walked with me long enough knows this is absolutely the case. You are safe with me. The church doesn't do it. And they especially don't do it with leadership. And you know what the Bible says? Especially when it comes to leadership, watch yourself. Wow. Why? Because that was a problem then too. It's a problem with all of us. What we do is we gripe and we complain or we stew about something. What we need to do is just talk to each other. Look each other right in the eye and say, I think you're a jerk. <laughs> I've had it said. I know it's a shocker to you. Anyway. <laughs> Stop it, Jeff. Anyway. <laughs> so do that because we've got to be better at this. So uh, Dismounting from my little soapbox here. Everyone must be quick to hear. We need to understand cases in all situations fully. Every, the, the Proverbs say that a case seems closed and shut until that case is cross-examined. How many of you found yourself in that place where you're like, I know that this person is doing the wrong thing, and then all of a sudden you find out more information, and you go, I was wrong. But you already opened your mouth and made a fool of yourself. It's, it's just something that can be stopped if we'll just pause, if we'll just wait, right? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
I love how many people love the story of Jesus flipping tables in the temple, right? He's got this zeal for his father's house, and it's awesome. And we've got King Jesus, who kind of looks like Chuck Norris at this moment. And he's breaking stuff, and we're like, yes, Jesus, finally, no more hippie. And we love this whole idea. But we then apply it to ourselves, and we jump out in life, and we go, when somebody appears to be not as righteous as I am, I'm going to go flipping tables, turning them all over. I, I want you to know that you're, you're not allowed to turn tables in the temple. You're not the Lord of any temple, right? You're called to be slow to anger. You're called to think through your issues. And you can't blame it on righteous indignation. That's what happens. I've seen many people in the church get hurt over this. I've had conversations with Sean and Amanda and other people who have been deeply hurt because people said, well, I know the Bible says be slow to anger, but my anger is justified. (laughs) Excuses. You're blaming something else. I don't know what's happening here, right? So let's keep going. I know that this is like a weird uh, collection of sermon notes here, but it's really important that we get this. Verse 20, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Did you know that? The Bible does say be angry and do not sin. But the Bible also says that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You see, God in his anger, it's amazing. God in his anger towards Nineveh, for example, caused God to send a prophet to call them to repentance. My anger, Jonah's anger, was burn them, kill them all. Let's just see them all die. My my anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God because one of the most important aspects of the righteousness of God is that God's loving kindness endures forever. What does it mean to be righteous? It means to stand right or to be right in God's eyes. God's loving kindness never ends. Righteousness includes mercy. Includes his grace. It includes his loving kindness. This is a big deal, church. So we're supposed to be quick to hear. Our temptation is we assume things. We're supposed to be slow to speak. Our temptation is be quick to speak and not listen fully. Our call is to be slow to anger. And our temptation is to rage about things and then blame it on righteous indignation. Verse 20 says, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore... In light of these truths, church, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, what was the context of filthiness and wickedness here? James didn't just jump out of his context and start talking about uh, pornography and all this other stuff. Maybe it's included, but he has a thing in mind, doesn't he? Your mouth is what he has in mind. Filthiness and wickedness, right? All that remains of wickedness. In humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls. You know what should come out of your mouth? The truth and the encouragement of God's word. That's what should come out of your mouth. But what comes out of our mouth? Slander and gossip and frustration and wickedness and all kinds of things. And James says, you need to put these things aside. You need to throw them away. Putting aside all this filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word which is implanted, which is able to save your souls. It also informs your life. Verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So let's think about what the word just said. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. 
I guess I need to be a doer of that now. Well, yeah, I do. And when I'm mad or when I'm upset, I can't blame somebody else. The temptation for me to sin here, to be enticed by my own desire and tell people off, is my problem. And it has to stop. It has to be quenched. It has to, be, it has to, it has to cease in my life, right? So I'm supposed to hear the word, but now I'm supposed to do it. So uh, all of you all are commissioned today to be quick to hear. You're commissioned today to be slow to speak, and you're commissioned today to be slow to anger because your anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Now listen, putting aside all filthiness and, uh, and all that remains in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not mere hearers who delude themselves. It doesn't do you any good to know the word of God if you don't live the word of God or if you don't speak the word of God. Verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten the kind of person that he was. But, but, one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, that's a person who actually does what they hear, is uh, this man will be blessed in what he does. Please understand, if we're looking in the mirror and we go away, some of us just want to forget what we just saw in the mirror. I do this morning by morning, right? So we walk away and go, oh my goodness. What he's talking about is the idea that if you're not going to be a doer of God's word, you walk away and you go, I don't know, Am I righteous? Am I not righteous? Am I following Jesus? Am I not following Jesus? Am I even a Christian right now? How many of you have asked that question in your life? Show, raise your hands, please. Uh, am I even a Christian today? Like, what is happening with me? Here's what's happened. Here's what's happened. You saw the mirror at one point in your life and you accepted that truth. But by the way, the reflection you're supposed to be seeing is the law of liberty. You're supposed to be seeing God right? You're supposed to see his reflection. We're image bearers, right? But what you saw in there, you forgot, and you walked away, and you ran off at the head, and you did all this other stuff that you do, right? And you, you then question everything about yourself. I, all of us have done it at some point. We wonder what in the world we're doing. We wonder how deeply we're following Jesus. We wonder if it's pleasing, we're pleasing to him. We wonder if he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant someday, most of us actually walk around going, gosh, I just, I think maybe he's just going to strike me dead someday. This is it. No. Here's what happens when you're fearing that. You need to go back to the mirror, back to the law of liberty, and you need to see what it's supposed to be. And then when you look at that, what are you supposed to do? Not just hear it, but do it, right? You're supposed to walk away and you're supposed to act that way. And when you do, you have confidence. You have a confidence that says, I know that this is pleasing to God. People might not agree, but I, I know that this is pleasing to God. I can walk in this manner. So he says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, having not, be, uh, not having become a forgetful here, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what, he's, what he does. Show of hands, how many of you want to live a blessed life now? How many of you want to live a blessed life now, every day? Guess what James just said? Control your tongue, do what God said. I, and that's not what I meant by a blessed life, Nathan. What I meant was a bigger house. 
What I meant was cooler cars. What I meant was freedom to do anything and everything I want to do. I want to travel. I want to see the world. All this stuff. Just, just, just work on the whole idea of submitting to Jesus. Let's just work on that, right? If you want blessing, that's where it's going to be found. And this is, this is an important thing for us to learn. Verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. This mainly because these people understand trial and temptation, or they understand trial better than most of us do, right? They have no one in the world to protect them. But he says, take care of the orphan, take care of the widow in their distress, and keep yourself unstained by the world, right? This is all about your tongue. So then he goes on, and he talks about uh, favoritism and some other things in chapter 2, which we'll get to after Easter. But here's, here's what I want to close with in this idea. We love, uh, we love to blame things on other people. And one of the church's biggest problems is blaming religion. I'm a religious person. I go to church. I read my Bible. The preacher actually knows my name. Does that matter? Doesn't matter. If you are here and all you are is a hearer without being a doer, James has hard words for you. And by the way, these are the words of God, which also means they're good, but they're good to show you kindness and call you back. If you think yourself to be religious, but don't bridle your tongue and deceive your own heart, your religion is worthless. Your reason for being here is pointless. I know, what preacher tells you that? I don't just want butts and seats, guys. Nobody in this leadership team wants butts and seats. What we want is to be a people who are hearers and doers. What we want is to be a people who don't blame everybody else for our problems. What we want is a people who look people straight in the eye and say, I have an issue or I want to encourage you, whatever it might be. Guys, the book of James is a deeply practical book, but when you get into the practical walking out of what James says, all of a sudden we go, it's a practical book, I just don't want to read it anymore. I don't want to do this. This is really difficult. We've got to start controlling our tongues, but I'm going to go back to the beginning of the service just for you. I believe everyone in this room deeply wants to please the Lord. Now you know how, right? I asked you, who wants to please the Lord? You all raised your hands. I said, how many of you want to please the Lord, but you sometimes don't know how? I spent the past 45 minutes saying, here's how. All you need to do is employ those things because I trust that it's true of you. You want to be faithful followers. Okay, watch your tongue. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger. Your anger doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Not with your husband, not with your wife, not with your kids, not with your boss, not with your employees. There's no... There's no situation in which that doesn't apply, okay? So you want to be pleasing to God. Well, here's how you get get pleasing to God. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. This is what we're supposed to do, church. I can imagine what the church of Galatia felt like when Paul walks in and says, you foolish Galatians. 
I imagine they were looking at him quite the same way you're looking at me. I know this is supposed to be encouraging, but you're not really good at it. I'm actually really good at encouraging you. I'm just not good at complimenting and fluffing people up. Encouragement means building courage into you so that you can do something, so that you can face hard times. You will never face hard times if the pastor keeps saying, you're sweet and nice and beautiful and cuddly. I don't know if that's true of most of you. (laughs) I'm glad I don't know. You're not going to know that. But you will be equipped for things if the pastor will look you in the eye and say, you talk too quickly. You listen too slowly. You're always angry. But I know you're trying to please God, so do it better. Right? So do it better. This is what my heart is for you. This is what I hope your heart is for me. You do know that because I'm a professional Christian, uh, I don't have it all together, right? Just because I'm a professional Christian. That's my own term, by the way. But just because I'm a professional Christian, I don't have it all together. I have to be corrected and molded and shaped and all of those things. So I want that of you. I want you to receive it from me. And I want us as a church, if we really, really, really want to please God, to heed the words he says. To heed the words he says. Amen.